Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. Let's join our presenter today, Pastor Lyle Southwell, as he continues his series on the three angels' messages found in Revelation chapter 14. Verse 7, the Bible gives us the first part of this message, and it comes in four parts that we noted last week. Fear God, which means to turn away from evil, righteousness by faith. Give glory to Him refers to our lifestyle, how we live our life. Why? Because the hour of His judgment has come. We are living in the time period of the judgment, which tells us that Jesus is coming back soon. We need to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Then it continues on and it quotes from the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment. It says, Worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Well, the second angel then comes along in verse 8 with a rather solemn message. And all of these have a somewhat solemn aspect to it. The Bible says there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And so here we come to a message that speaks about the fall of Babylon. And when I came to this one, I thought, well, you know, we had a lot to get through last week, didn't we? How do you cover those four subjects in one presentation? I came to this one, I thought, oh, this is easy. And then I started to get into it and found that, um, oh, there's a whole bunch here as well. But anyway, so why is it that God uses Babylon right here as a symbol of evil at the end of time? Why does God speak about the fall of Babylon? What is this particular city? Of course, the city of Babylon doesn't exist today. But why does God use it from one end of the Bible to symbolize all that is evil? We have looked at it briefly before, and so we'll look at it briefly again. But Babylon is the first city that is mentioned anywhere in the Bible. And, of course, Babylon comes from the uh, Tigris-Euphrates Valley there. It was where Nimrod set up this very first city, this very first empire. These are the cities of the empire that he established. And the first religion that was in opposition to God, in which he openly defied God, he built the Tower of Babel as a plain admission of the existence of God because it was his means of surviving rebellion against God. Basically, he looked out at the history of the world. He saw God, how God had flooded the world because people had turned away from God. He said, I am going to turn away from God, but to do that, I need to be able to survive it. So they built the Tower of Babel there. And, uh, and, and so this very first city that is mentioned anywhere in the Bible becomes a center of rebellion against God. Of course, then in later times, we come down to the time of Nebuchadnezzar, who built it into the greatest city of the ancient world. And once again, it was a center for rebellion against God. It was a place, it was a location where the devil tried to destroy God's people off the face of the earth. That was, the, that was what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to accomplish there at that particular time. And that's exactly what we have when we come down to the end of time. If we turn in our Bibles over to Revelation chapter 17... And we want to find out who Babylon is. The Bible makes it rather easy for us. The Bible begins in Revelation 17, um, speaking about a great harlot. But if we go down to verse 5, the Bible says, And upon her, that's the head of the great harlot, upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Now, if we read about this woman, the first thing that we find is that she is, a, she is depict, depicted as a woman holding a golden cup. And if we go down a few more verses, the Bible says in verse 9, here is 
and here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So very, very simply, we need to ask ourselves this question. In Bible prophecy, a woman symbolizes a church. Is there a church that is sitting on a city that is sitting on seven mountains and that is depicted as a woman that holds a golden cup. Well, you can go there today. We all know where the the city on seven mountains is, don't we? The eternal city, the city of Rome. You can go there today. And what do you find when you go there today? You find the woman that is holding the golden cup. It's um, rather easy for us to figure out who the Bible is speaking about right here in Revelation chapter 17. Now, if we go back to very ancient Babylon, we find that Nimrod associated himself with the sun and later became the sun god, which is why the sun was depicted as having a face in it, the personification of the sun. And then we find that same woman again, and you would expect her to be holding maybe baby Jesus, but no, 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 she's holding the sun. So it's making it quite easy for us right here to identify. We also find that the alternative to following Jesus Christ is to following who? Satan, Lucifer. What is his symbol? He's symbolized by the serpent, isn't that so? And there she is holding the serpent. And you find all of it right here. It's made rather easy for us, holding an Egyptian pyramid with the rays of the sun coming out of her head. And this one is most interesting because here she's holding a lightning bolt. And she's destroying these men over here. We're going to talk a little bit more about them later on as we go through this particular message. But these two men are identified by the books that they are holding. And there they are. You have Martin Luther and John Calvin. You might be wondering, who was Martin Luther and who was John Calvin? These were men who lived in the 16th century. They began what was called the Great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. They were called Protestants because they were protesting against the church that was in Rome because there were a number of principles that they were standing on and the two primary principles that they stood on was the Bible alone and salvation by grace alone. There were a couple of other ones that we're going to look at in a little bit more detail as we go further through. But on these two principles, the Bible alone and salvation by grace alone, they established the great protest of the 16th century from where we get Protestant churches that today we call evangelical churches. The reason we don't call them Protestant churches anymore is because they no longer protest against Rome. We all clearly understand why they're called evangelical churches today. That's, that's why, where, where, it, where it originates from. And of course, then you've got uh, this little demon over here in the corner there. You might have seen him tearing pages out of the Bible. But anyway, let's come back to our great harlot here. And uh, in, verse seven, in chapter 17 and verse 1, the Bible says, There came one of the seven angels which had seven vials, talked with me, saying unto me, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute that sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. The inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Let's make some observations about what we have here. The Bible symbolizes the great harlot as a woman. Um, she is a harlot and she has worldwide influence. And in verse 2, we find that the leaders of the world, the kings of the world, the political leaders of the world have got into bed with religion. Have you noticed that? They are mixing with this particular church. There, is a, there are illicit relationships that are taking place right here. And whenever you get politics and religion mixing together, you have a disaster. 
There is a very clear reason why God said that church and state should be separate from each other, and we have many examples that we could look at it in our world today. I was just talking about, we were talking about this in our Sabbath school class this morning, how that when I was in, in Iran, it is a perfect object lesson. The Islamic st- uh, state, or sorry, the Islamic Republic of Iran is what it's called. Its name proclaims the fact that it is a union of church and state. And if you go there today, you find a a country that has fabulous wealth because it is an oil country and yet it lives in third world poverty. Why? Because they have a union of church and state. It's that simple. The Bible says in verse 3, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet-colored beast. What is a woman a symbol of in Bible prophecy? A church? What is a beast a symbol of? A state, a nation. So here you have a woman, a church, who is riding a state, a nation. You have a union of religion and politics together, but it is the church that is controlling the state. You see what is taking place? And that's exactly what we have in the Vatican uh, to, the, uh, uh, to this day. It goes on, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, decked with gold and precious stones, having a golden cup in her hand. We, we noticed that a minute ago. Full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And here the Bible uses very, very strong language. And language that it is politically very, very incorrect to use today. In reference to a church that is seen to do so much good in the world. And yet people forget their history. People forget that we are here reading about the most violent institution that has ever existed on the planet. An institution that has caused more deaths than any other institution that has ever existed. The Bible uses strong language. Verse 6 says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration in the old English that doesn't mean that he thought it was good but he was just his mind was blown by what he was seeing this is a um, institution that is involved in blasphemy decked out to the hilt a persecutor Um, the bible talks about a mother uh, as a mother church and that this particular organization will face total annihilation that's a very quick run through and you'll notice that I'm moving quickly here this morning But it gives us an idea, it gives us some identifying characteristics so that we can know exactly who it is that we are talking about when we are talking about Babylon and the fall of Babylon. Except that there is one problem. If we study the history of the Vatican, we do not find a point at which we could say that the Vatican had a moral fall for the Vatican has always been in a fallen condition. And yet in Revelation chapter 14, there is a message going out at the end of time that Babylon is fallen. So clearly, Babylon at the end of time is going to involve far more than just the Vatican. We need to dig a little bit deeper, don't we? Because there is a moral fall that takes place at the end of time. And to answer that question, we go over to Revelation chapter 16, or back to Revelation chapter 16. And in verse 13, we find a fascinating union taking place. Revelation 16 and verse 13, the Bible says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, 
and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now we have moved right down to the very end of time. And notice what we have taking place at the very end of time. We have a global gathering together taking place right here, isn't that so? And this global gathering is a political gathering, isn't it? A gathering of the kings of the earth, the political leaders of the world, all coming together. But if we continue on from there, if we notice in this passage right here, that this global gathering together is driven, the driving force behind it is the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, which all exist within the realm of religion. And so we have these three unclean spirits coming together, forming a union together, grabbing hands with each other, forming a coalition to then go out and pull the whole world together. Now, we live in globalism right now. We see our world being drawn together right now. That's what we are, that's the, that's the reality that we face right now. What we don't see so much is that the driving force behind globalism right now is religion. But if you do a little bit of research, if you start to scratch the surface, you will find that religion is the driving force behind the globalization of our world right now. What I find interesting right here is you have these three, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet coming together, and you have this gathering together, and then, of course, you go down a few more verses, and the whole thing blows up because the Bible says in verse 19, the great city was divided into how many parts? Three parts. And the cities of the nation fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God. We have the fall of Babylon. When Babylon falls apart, it falls apart into three parts. It is put together at the end of time by stitching together three parts. And you might ask the question, well, what do these three parts symbolize? Well, I did think this would be an easy subject to present, but then I realized there's quite a few subjects here as well. So I'm going to summarize it this morning. I know that some of you know the answers and some of you don't. So for those of you who don't, come and see me and we will do some Bible studies and some exciting subjects. The dragon is a symbol of who? Satan. And so from a religious perspective, Satan is going to represent those religions that do not profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. That's fairly simple. The beast, we understand to be the same as the harlot. We understand to be the Vatican. The false prophet refers specifically to the United States. And once again, if you've got questions, come and speak to me later. It refers to the United States, and particularly the religious aspect of the United States. Now, when we think of the United States from a religious perspective, what kind of a religion do we think of? Evangelical Christianity. So what does the Bible depict here? A coming together of the Vatican, of evangelical Christianity, and the other great world religions to gather together against God. That's what we call the ecumenical movement. 60 years ago, we didn't have the ecumenical movement, but now we do. It tells us we are living in the end of time. 
If you go back 60 years ago, in fact, you find that there were very, very clear lines of demarcation between the great religions of the world. They didn't mix. They didn't blend at all. It didn't happen. Protestants and Catholics walked down opposite sides of the streets to each other. And in Northern Ireland, or in Ireland, I should say, they fought each other. Now, the ecumenical movement was good from this perspective. It stopped people from killing each other. Is that a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. I won't criticize it for that. However, while we see that the ecumenical movement has done a lot of good, it's enabled us to love each other as Christians, I also recognize that the Bible speaks about it. And with anything that's good, the devil loves to to take it and to push it on a swing so that it goes past what is being good, and then he loves to just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it out to an extreme out here to where it all comes unstuck. And that's exactly what the Bible is talking about here. An ecumenical movement that goes way, way, way too far, and suddenly you have a blending together of religions where the Bible ceases to be important. Because you can't blend religions without making this unimportant, isn't that so? And so we have to stop and ask ourselves, well, what actually has been happening? You know, if we were to uh, go back through history a little bit and find out, you know, where were we, you know, even um, a little over 200 years ago, um, if we go back just a little over 200 years ago to 1798, we find this statement here, the papers, it was extinct, not a vestige, vestige of its existence remained among all the Roman Catholic powers, not a finger was stirred in its defense. The eternal city no longer had a prince or pontiff, its bishop was a dying captive in foreign lands, and the decree was already announced that no successor would be allowed in his place. This was the lowest point that the Vatican ever reached, and it was so low, nobody in the world expected it to ever come back. Has the Vatican come back? Yeah? Does the Vatican exercise power in our world today? Yeah? You know, sometimes we look at our world and we think, oh, you know, the the Vatican is just this tiny little city. It's only a few hundred acres. This tiny little country, I should say. It's only a few hundred acres. It doesn't really have that much influence until you have something happen, like when John Paul II died and it produced the greatest media event to this day our world has ever seen. It produced a greatest gathering together of world dignitaries that our world has ever seen. In fact, there's a map of all of the dignitaries that attended that particular event right there. There's not too many that were left out, was there? It produced a situation in which you had three presidents, first lady and secretary of state, who all knelt in front of the coffin of the Pope who had passed away. You know, this is just a few years after he had John Kennedy, who became President of the United States only after promising the American people that he would not obey the Pope. It's interesting, he went to Texas to to, to make that promise, and it was in Texas that he was assassinated. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? But a long time before that, Ellen White made a statement in the book Great Controversy that the Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They'll reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power. 
So out of that threefold union, we find here that the Bible, that, 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 that uh, Ellen White makes a statement that the United States is the driving force in pulling the three of them together. And once again, it's interesting to observe what is taking place in our world today. The most powerful part of the US government, and in Australia we probably don't understand the US system of government as well because we don't have a, a, a presidential system in our country, is the Supreme Court. Because the Supreme Court is the body that interprets the law, and the way they interpret the law actually creates what the law is. So you can make laws to your heart's content, but if the Supreme Court interprets it in a different way, then that law is a very different law. And here's a couple of Supreme Court facts that are worth considering. There have been 213 justices in American history. 13 of those have been Catholic. Until 1994, the court had a Protestant majority. From 2010 until this year, there has not been a single Protestant on the Supreme Court. Does that tell you something? Does it tell you that somebody somewhere has an agenda to form a union between evangelical United States and the Vatican? In 1965, there were only 48 million Roman Catholics in the US. Now, in 2015, there are 82 million. Francis was only the fourth pope to ever visit the United States, but there's been 10 visits since John Paul II. It's making a uh, quite a major impact. And then, of course, we have our new Jesuit pope who just has a massive impact on our world today, which brings us back to what we were talking about earlier in relationship to Martin Luther and John Calvin, who were some of the primary movers in starting the great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Men who said, we need to go back to the Bible. And because of their decision to go back to the Bible, they came up with what's called today, today we call them the five solas, the Bible alone, and this was the protest against the Antichrist, which made meant that they were, which was why they became called Protestants, protesters against the Vatican. The Bible alone, that leads to salvation by grace alone, rather than receiving grace through the sacraments. That leads to grace by faith alone. That faith is in Christ alone. It is not in the priest. It is not in the Pope or any other human being or the saints or Mary or anyone else, which leads to glory alone, which simply means that we are in a situation where if, we are, if it is glory to God alone, we do not pray to the dead. Because central to the teaching of Catholicism is praying to the dead. And so this was the foundation of the protest that began in 1517, when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses or 95 protests against the Vatican to a church door in Wittenberg and gave birth to the Protestant evangelical churches that we have today. This was the foundation of it right here. Now, when you look at these five points right here, you would say that they create a very wide gap a very wide gap between Roman Catholicism and evangelical Christianity, a gap that would be incredibly hard to bridge, wouldn't you think? This is the foundation, and you have to do away with the foundation if you're going to try and bridge that gap. 2017, 500 years since 1517. 
500 years since Luther nailed his 95 protests to the church door in Wittenberg. Is anything changing recently? Well, in the lead up to 2017, the JDDJ, the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification, was brought out between the Vatican and the Lutheran Church, the church that Martin Luther began on those five principles there. Well, what did the JJ, sorry, the JDDJ come up with? This joint declaration is able to formulate a consensus on basic truths concerning the doctrine of justification. In light of this consensus, the corresponding doctrinal condemnations of the 16th century do not apply to today's partner. In other words, the protest is over. The Vatican and the Lutheran churches have come together and said, we no longer disagree. But my question is this. If they no longer disagree, does that mean that the Vatican no longer prays to the dead? That the Vatican no longer holds tradition equal to the Bible or above the Bible? Does that mean that the, the Vatican no longer believes that, that grace is received through the sacraments? Has the Vatican changed? Now, if the Vatican hasn't changed, then who has? It's evangelical Christianity that has changed. In fact, um, Francis speaking to a group of the major evangelical leaders of the United States in an address made this statement. He said, we, permit me to say, separated. He's a very diplomatic guy, Francis. Separated because it's sin that has separated us, all our sins, the misunderstandings of history. It has been a long road of sins that we all shed. He said, look, we're separated because of the misunderstandings of history. And when I stop and think about that for a moment, uh, it, 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 it makes me ask the question, is the concept that, or the idea that tradition carried more authority than the Bible, is that a misunderstanding of history? No. That Mary is equal to Jesus Christ, is that a misunderstanding of history? These were the things the foundation, the, the Reformation was founded on. That we should confess our sins to God rather than to another human being. Is that a misunderstanding of history? No. That it was okay, still is, to buy permission from the church to commit sins. Shell and I were in the Vatican uh, last year and Pope Francis was holding mass out there, right there in front of the, in front of, in the, in the in St. Peter's Square and like, yep, I'm going to go there. Absolutely. I'm going to see this. And of course, because we were there, we were, holding a we were handed a certificate that gave us one free sin. I'm dead serious. One free indulgence for being there. That was what it was called. Didn't have to go to... Uh, so I'm ahead of you guys here. Yeah, okay. I think we got some time out of purgatory as well. Is this a misunderstanding of history that a priest can create God? in the sacrament. Is it a misunderstanding from history that we should pray to dead people? These are not misunderstandings from history. And yet we see what is being said right here. He continues on, and uh, of course this was set up by a man by the name of Tony Palmer, who is a Protestant who went on to say and to state in light of this statement right here that the protest is over. It's finished. There is no more protest against Rome. Well, I'm sorry, but there are a number of things that I've just mentioned here that I still protest against. Don't you? 
We should protest against. I'm yearning that this separation comes to an end and gives us communion. I'm yearning for that embrace that the Holy Scripture speaks of. When Joseph's brothers began to starve from hunger, they went to Egypt so that they could eat. eat. And he likens it the separation between Joseph and his brothers, which is interesting symbolism because Joseph is singular, brothers are plural, plural, the Vatican is singular, and the evangelicals are plural. So who are, who is he actually, you know, there's some interesting stuff that's like, we should wake up and catch what's going on. Let us pray that the Lord, pray to the Lord that he unites us all. Come on, we are brothers. Let us give each other a spiritual hug and let God complete the work that he has begun. And this is a miracle, the miracle of unity has begun. Friends, we need to have and we need to practice brotherly love with our fellow Christians who are, who are saved by God's grace and on their way to heaven. Isn't that so? We need to always remember this. But that does not mean that we put the Bible aside and say we're going to simply unite because the Bible no longer matters anymore. We need to practice love. In the lead up to 2017, the decade of jubilees, the aspiration of the evangelical churches today is to achieve an ecumenical community with no national or confessional borders. 500 years of the this is the this is the uh, the celebration of the Reformation that has been taking place in Germany, and you can't read it there, so I sent it to my German friends to uh, translate. Opening of the Luther Decade, Reformation and Confession, Reformation in Education, Reformation in Freedom, Reformation in Music, Reformation in Politics, Reformation in Tolerance, Reformation Picture and Bible, Reformation of the One World, thought that was interesting terminology, Reformation Jubilee. What is the Reformation Jubilee all about? The Reformation Jubilee is all about signing a document ending the protest stating that there is no more a difference, a coming together of evangelical Christianity and Roman Catholicism, just as the Bible said would happen. And we are seeing it happen right now. As Seventh-day Adventists, when we started to preach about this 150 years ago, people thought this was the most ludicrous message that had ever been presented, that it was an absolute impossibility. I looked out at the world today. When Adventists were preaching about this, President Lincoln in the United States was considering banning Roman Catholicism from his country. This was, this was when the popes were writing encyclical letters and papal bulls against the United States Constitution. This was when all diplomatic ties between the US and the Vatican were severed. But the Bible says the deadly wound would be healed. And now you can barely see the scar tissue. Pope Francis's offers is a document that could alter the course of Christian history. It declares an end to hostilities between Catholics and Evangelicals and says the true, 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 two traditions are now united in mission because we are declaring the same gospel. Well, friends, my Bible teaches a doctrine a gospel of salvation by grace alone. My Bible does not teach me that I receive that grace through the sacraments. It tells me that I receive that grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Your Bible teaches the same thing. Praise God.
The Holy Father is thinking of signing the text in 2017, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, alongside evangelicals representing roughly one in four Christians in the world today. Um, coming back to our jubilees, there's uh, for, for just this, this year, there's the Jubilee of Mercy, uh, the Jubilee of the Protestant Reformation, the one that we just mentioned, uh, the Jubilee Dialogue between Lutherans and Catholics since 67, the Jubilee for the Charismatic Movement, 50 years since it began back in 67 as well. And, of course, that was what was initiated and has progressed, initiated by Tony Palmer and Pope John the Paul II a couple of years ago and has been progressing very, very rapidly and steadily, steadily ever since. Service of reconciliation prompted and requested by the Protestant Catholic churches in Germany will be held in March, in, or has, has been held in Hildesheim in March 11, 2017. He'll combine elements of repentance, prayers for forgiveness with acts of reconciliation intended to bolster the future of ecumenism. Uh, nearly 500 years after Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the Castle Church door, the largest Lutheran denomination in the United States has approved a declaration recognising there are no longer church-dividing issues on many points of the Roman Catholic Church. The declaration comes as the Lutheran and Catholic churches prepare to kick off a year of celebrations to mark the 500th anniversary of Protestantism. And we could continue talking about that particular aspect of it. But there is another whole aspect of Christianity that predates where the Protestant evangelical churches split. You see, previous to that, there was a political split in Catholicism. It was called the Great Schism. The Great Schism of 1054, which split between East and West and originated with the Orthodox churches. And if we look at the Orthodox churches, we find exactly the same thing that is taking place right now with the Pope meeting with the leaders of the Orthodox churches and putting out a joint declaration in obedience to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, we firmly and wholeheartedly resolve to intensify our efforts to promote the full unity of all Christians. And we could continue on. We could look at many other aspects of it, but I want to come down to this one at the bottom here of giving glory to God alone. Giving glory to God alone means that we don't pray to the dead. It means we don't pray to the saints and to Mary and everybody else. It means we pray to God alone because that's where the glory belongs, isn't that so? And yet if we look in the Anglican church, we do not consider the practice of asking Mary and the saints to pray for us as communion dividing. We believe that there is no continuing theological reason for ecclesial division on these matters. And we could spend a lot more time talking about the union that is developing between the Anglican Church and Roman Catholicism. Everywhere we look, Orthodox, Anglican, Lutheran, there is a global coming together right now, an ending of the divisions of the past. But it is an ending of the divisions of the past where there is one entity that is unchanging. And that is the Vatican. The Vatican has not changed. The Bible says that this union that takes place, which is described as Babylon, and describes it as falling, suffering a moral fall. The only way that you can suffer a moral fall is if you are in a point which is high from which you can fall. If you're standing here on the ground, you can't fall down here, can you? Because you're already here. But if you are up here somewhere, then you are in a position where you can fall. 
Protestant evangelical churches have had the Bible, salvation by grace. And by going back to the Vatican, what are they doing? They are falling into the same things the Bible speaks of as an abomination that have existed down through the centuries. It's strong language, I know, but this is what the Bible is teaching us and it's what we are seeing right now. The third aspect of this union that is taking place in our world is a coming together of the world religions. Outside of Christianity, we see it taking place between evangelical the United States and the Vatican. We see them reaching across, across the gulf to grasp hands with each other. But what about the great non-Christian religions of the world? Well, here we have uh, the Pope kissing a holy book. Which holy book is that? That is the Quran. And you would ask, well, why would the Pope take the Holy Quran and kiss a copy of the Holy Quran? Because exactly the same thing is taking place within Islam, between Islam and the Vatican, as what is taking place in the other world. And it's interesting with the whole war on terror, how it has divided Islam between radical Islam, which will never accept this kind of thing, and the rest of Islam and marginalized radical Islam and set the rest of Islam on edge like, oh no, we want to be peace. And praise God for that. But it's setting them up in many ways. Uh, Malachi Martin, Jesuit priest, Vatican insider, one of the keenest political observers of modern times, said uh, there will come a time when the heart of Islam, already attuned to the figure of Mary will receive the illumination it needs, a second Fatima, because, of course, Our Lady of Fatima is Muhammad's daughter, in which they will recognize him, that's the Pope, as God's vicar on earth. Then the Pope could be worshipped as as the infallible Holy Father by over one half of the world's population. He saw it coming, wrote about it. We see it happening right now. That's what the Bible said would happen. It's almost like Malachi Martin took it straight out of Revelation chapter 16. It's like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do Revelation 16. We are going to bring these great religions together. We see it taking place. The White made a statement in the great controversy, but God will have a people on the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms, the opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority, not one nor all of these should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith before accepting any doctrine or precept. We should demand a plain Thus saith the Lord in its support. Friends, we need to be people of the Bible, people of this book right here. We need to be people who know the Bible. We know it inside out, back to front and upside down and are able to recognize what is taking place in our world and to see that the signs that are taking place around us right now are telling us that Jesus is coming back because what is happening in our world right now is absolute, was absolutely unthinkable even 20 years ago. And yet we have these great events taking place right around us and we just, you know, we have a yawn and we 
turn up to church on Sabbath and another Sabbath goes and another Sabbath comes and God is calling us to wake up. God is calling us, behold, the bridegroom comes. Go you out to meet him. That's the message that we are finding as we work right here, a message that should return us to God's word, the Bible. And so finally we need to ask the question, why does Babylon fall? What is the purpose for the fall of Babylon? And if we turn in our Bibles to the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2, we find why Babylon falls. In verse 2, the Bible says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Why does Babylon fall? Babylon falls to make way for Jerusalem. Not the old Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem. Why is this important? We're going to read about it in a moment. Before I do, I'm going to go to my next slide. There it is. You see, I thought, I'll put a slide up here for the new Jerusalem. So I started looking at photos of or pictures of the new Jerusalem. And there are the classical ones that make it look like a medieval city. There are the modern ones that make it look like a a sci-fi city. There are a whole bunch of different ones in between. There are the ancient ones that make it look like an ancient city. And you know, the more I looked at them, the more I thought, you know, this is actually impossibility. How do you depict the New Jerusalem? You know, I would rather just read what the Bible says. God gives us a word picture. Continues on here. Why, 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 does, why is it important that Babylon falls so it can be replaced by New Jerusalem? Why is it important that New Jerusalem replaces it? Verse 3, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the living place of God is with men. He will live with them. They shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. When I was a young person, 15 years old, I gave my heart to God this became one of the most important verses to me. Just put me personally at that particular time. Just the thought that God would live with us and we would live with God, that we would see him, that we would worship him face to face. This is what the Bible is pointing us to. When the Bible says Babylon is fallen is fallen, the Bible says, the Bible is telling us this is good news because now the place has been made for the establishment of the new Jerusalem. Why is that important? Because God will be here. It continues on and it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. Does that sound like good news to you? Something to look forward to? Absolutely it does. I'll tell you, friends, here's what I, I don't have time to read. The whole word picture that the Bible gives of the New Jerusalem. So here's my homework for you. Okay? You know I said homework, right? It's always homework. Always homework. Here's your homework. Read chapter 21. Read the whole chapter. Won't take you very long. And then have it read it, having read it. Discuss it amongst yourselves as you go for a walk with Andrew this afternoon. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? Great topic for a Sabbath afternoon discussion. There is a much better picture here than we can ever try and create with our artistic skill. 
chapter 22, verse 1. Oh, there's so many good parts here, it's almost hard to decide which ones to leave in and to leave out. But we need to find something to finish on. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Isn't it it just a human trait that we love to be near water? Doesn't just the presence of water, whether it's the ocean or a river or whatever it is, I don't know about you, but the presence of water, it just relaxes. It makes you feel closer to God, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just there's something about water. And here it right is, central to the New Jerusalem, in the middle of the street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bare 12 different kinds of fruit and yielded her fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. There shall be no night there, and they need no candle or electric lights or LEDs or whatever we use today. Neither the light of the sun. Why? Because the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly be done. When the angel stood there and said, these sayings are faithful and true 2,000 years ago, he looked forward to today. When we could read in Revelation chapter 16, Revelation chapter 17, And we could see that these sayings are faithful and true because they are happening right now. The great thing about the book of Revelation for us is that the only part we have not yet seen is this little bit right here. It's the next event, the doing away of Babylon and the establishment of the new Jerusalem. Aren't you looking forward to that day? I know I am. Praise God. Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope that you give us, hope of a new day, hope of the establishment of the new Jerusalem. We look forward to that day. We pray that we'll all be a part of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, You can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia, all one word. .org.au Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia Thank you for your prayers and financial support. It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Engineered for success, renewal, recovery, restoration. Harvey and Irma captivated the news for weeks. 
No, not the sweet couple married for 75 years, but the two super hurricanes whose names they share. In September 2017, Harvey pounded Texas with such violence that it put two-thirds of Houston underwater. Irma followed shortly after, crushing the Caribbean islands, pounding Florida, and wreaking havoc in the surrounding islands. Aside from the indescribable human and private property loss, these hurricanes inflicted more than $500 billion worth of damage and may go down in history as the costliest natural disasters in America. Storm-ravaged cities have two major challenges. Damaged infrastructure, such as communication and transportation systems, shut down normal operations. The result is a second problem, weakened defense systems, and that makes the city vulnerable to violence and vandalism. The city is now in survival mode. It needs comprehensive renewal, recovery, and restoration. Have you ever had times when you've been in survival mode? Have you ever felt like you needed spiritual renewal, physical recovery, and emotional restoration? I think most of us have. God often uses the things that we can see to help us understand the things that we cannot see. Notice this vivid comparison of just such a city with mankind in his broken and vulnerable condition. A man without self-control is like that city that is broken down and without walls. Proverbs 25, 28. Yes, that broken city powerfully illustrates the broken brain, a brain that may have been broken down over time by chronic stress, depression, unhealthy lifestyle, and addictions. The battle is for the brain, the seat of our thoughts, emotions, and actions, and that's where recovery begins. The brain has been called the hardware of the soul. A healthy, well-functioning brain can make better choices and more clearly hear the guiding voice of God. There are three major areas that influence your brain. First, genes. You cannot change your gene structure, but its function and activity is dramatically influenced by your diet, lifestyle, exercise, and even the way you think. Second, environment. Your internal environment is how you think. Your external environment is what surrounds you. God has a wonderful restoration plan for your life. He's got the power to change your brain, emotions, desires, actions, environment, and your life. Third, choice. Every choice you make, to a greater or lesser degree, affects emotional, mental, and physical health. Every day presents you with opportunities to make choices that will influence brain-body systems and even the activity of your genes. Every choice that improves the health of your brain improves the health of your body, and vice versa. God has a plan for physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual renewal. The great news is that you can move forward and continue forward, whether your brain has been hit by a storm of stress, depression, negativity, or unhealthy habits. Experiences, thoughts, actions, and emotions actually change the structure of our brains. Rebuilding a broken city requires a plan. So does rebuilding a broken brain. Your brain is constantly reshaping itself according to what it learns. This is called plasticity. 
Plasticity is the term neuroscientists use to describe the remarkable ability of our brains to adapt and change. Scientists now know that the brain is a far more open system than we ever imagined, and nature has given us a brain that survives in a changing world by changing itself. Behavioral and lifestyle choices build a better brain, better habits, better health, and a better life for good. Here are some key pieces. Environment. The internal environment of how you think and the external environment that you surround yourself with are critical for achieving and maintaining positive change. Repeating God's promises replace faulty internal monologues. His word is living, powerful, and true. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 Focus on what you can change in your surroundings. Focus on solutions and the power of God to guide you, not problems and obstacles. Lifestyle. Lifestyle choices strongly affect physical, mental, and spiritual health. Physical and mental exercise, proper nutrition, and adequate sleep will help anyone gain cognitive clarity and emotional stability. Nicotine, caffeine, Alcohol and refined sugar dampen immune health, fan the fires of inflammation, and promote stress, addictions, and depression. Food is medicine. Replacing empty calories, unhealthy fast foods, and high-fat animal products with nutrient-rich fresh vegetables and fruits, beans, whole grains, and nuts creates real strength, lowers stress hormones, inflammation, and boosts mental and physical energy. Modest positive choices pave the way for breaking big, bad habits. Daily exercise improves circulation and improves every level of brain function, including learning, problem-solving, creativity, and mood. Connections. Your associations and interests have a profound shaping effect on your values and goals. Take time to connect with others. Connecting with God through prayer and time in the Bible open the gates of power, guidance, and courage for life's journey. The promise is, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Psalm 32, 8. Managing Stress You need practical strategies to tap into when confronting challenges and stress. A healthy lifestyle lowers stress hormone activity, protects the brain and body from stress damage, and improves problem solving. Assessment. It's always important to work closely with your physician or healthcare provider because lifestyle changes may reduce or eliminate the need for certain medications over time. Medicine or medical procedures may be essential in certain situations. Remember, God cares about your welfare. He has a plan and the power to renew your heart, recover broken health, and restore emotional and mental strength. Grace and strength will be given you for every trial. For those who trust Him and commit their lives to Him, the promise of heaven and a new earth where there will be no more pain, suffering, or disease is assured. Revelation 21, 4. Restoration and hope begin now. Will you choose God's plan? He's waiting to help and bless you. You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin.
My wife and I have always wanted to buy a motorhome. From time to time, we've gone online to look at these beautiful vehicles. We've gone to the yards, and some of them have these big slides that pop out on both sides to create a remarkably large living space. It is fair to say that these new homes on wheels were a lot more expensive than we wanted to pay. And from a practical perspective, a nice caravan would be about half the price. But there is something about being able to travel inside your home that appealed to us more than a caravan that had to be towed behind our car. It just felt more inclusive traveling inside a home. So while toying with the idea of buying a caravan, we unexpectedly found an affordable motorhome. It was an oldie, but a goodie. We weighed up the two options. Would we go with the mobile home wherein the engine and the power that drives the home is part of the vehicle, or would we get a tow bar added to our existing car and tow the caravan behind us? You know, we can actually look at the church of God in the same way as we did when we went shopping for a mobile home. Do you see the church of God as separate from you, a place where you go to a building to meet with God once a week? Or do you see yourself as already connected with God as God's dwelling place, where you are the place where God intimately meets with you and the power of God is within you, not merely external to you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul asked you and me the following question. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Yes, God made you. And when he lost you, he came looking for you. And instead of hooking up behind him and dragging you around against your will, God paid the price for you and bought you back. You are in fact God's mobile home, and He has the receipt and the ownership papers. He wants to live in you through the Holy Spirit, and you get to choose. And if you let Him in, He will fill your life with the power and joy of the Holy Spirit that wherever you go, you will glorify God in your body and in your spirit at God's possession and God's dwelling place. Why not let Him in today? I'm Etienne McClintock for Bible 180, where God sets your journey in a new and positive direction. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.